Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, February the 24th, 2024. Some 10 years ago, a little more, a few days more than 10 years ago, a book was published called Waking Up White and Finding Myself in the Story of Race by my guest, Debbie Irving. Turned into a huge hit on Amazon. It has almost 4,000 ratings. Um, and uh, on Goodreads, astonishingly, it gets uh, 10,000 ratings and almost 2,000 reviews. It hit a nerve. And on its 10th anniversary, I thought we would have uh, Debbie Irving, who uh, is now a full-time racial justice activist, back on the show to talk about the book, her experience of the book, and her thoughts on racial justice and injustice in the United States over the last 10 years. Uh, Debbie, uh, thanks so much for coming on the show. Before we start, tell me a little bit about the background to Waking Up White, your own background and how you came to write this book. Um, well, I'm speaking to you from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and I was born and raised in a suburb not far from here, Winchester, Massachusetts. It's an affluent suburb. And uh, to say it's white is a little redundant because suburbs, of course, were initially uh, white, designed to be white. But I didn't know that. So I just had this kind of Norman Rockwell-esque childhood not thinking anything of it. I thought it was a nice childhood. Uh, come out of, go to a, I call it my white bubble, went to a white bubble college, Kenyon College in Ohio, come out and find myself back in the, in the Boston area at the intersection of arts and education. And I was, one of my jobs was raising money and there was a lot of money to be raised for quote unquote, uh, inner city under-resourced neighborhoods, especially young people in those neighborhoods. And I found myself in these neighborhoods for the first time and the stark difference between what Winchester looked like and what these Boston neighborhoods looked like was dramatic. And uh, I swung into what I would now call white savior mode. I was desperate to do something to help these neighborhoods and these young people. And I raised money and I created um, after school programs. And I was at that point without understanding and I was really stuck in that white savior mindset. And I was actually, I was on diversity committees for 25 years. Uh, until the age of 48, at which point I, and I'm 63 now, so at age 48, I had become a classroom teacher, an elementary school teacher, and I went back to school to get um, my master's in special ed, and there was a required first course. It was called Racial and Cultural Identities, and I thought I was going to learn about black and brown children and families so I could serve them better, but in fact, I was asked on day one to do a deep semester long dive into my own racial and cultural identity. The whole class was told that's what we would be doing. And my thought was, what am I going to be doing? Like, I just didn't even understand that I had a racial or cultural identity. Cut to the end of that course, I was so stunned by what I learned I had never been taught. And I was a history major in college. I kind of felt like who let me loose in front of young children to be a teacher. So I I did not pursue that uh, degree. I left my day job and I did nothing for four years but do a self-guided study of racial cultural identity and race and racism, um, classism, all of the isms wound up together. And Waking Up White is the book that chronicles that journey. 
Well, you include classism and racism and all the, I'm quoting you, the isms. What is an ism? What does that mean? So when I use the word ism, I mean, um, there's a system, a hierarchy that begins with an ideology um, that, that all humans aren't equal by race, by class, by gender, by ability, by religion. There are all these ways that these hierarchies uh, impose a value system. And then that ideology is expressed through systems and structures and also through culture. So it's hard to look at one without uh, having the other ones touch that observation. I mean, you're certainly not the first or the last person to be be struck with this, but were you surprised? Did you grow up? Uh, at what age were you? You said you were a teacher. Did you think that everyone, there was no such thing as discrimination, no such thing as class hierarchies or economic inequality? I, I would have said, oh, I know there are, but I would have, I, it, I wouldn't even have understood how I understood it. That's sort of how insidious this is. I now understand that all this exposure I'd had over the course of not just my childhood, but my life, and I still hear this messaging today, that the playing field is level in the United States. That's the whole point here. This is how was, I took it in. Um, anybody can come here. You can make it. You know, All you have to do is work hard. And in Winchester, there was story after story of families who would say, you know, my great grandparents came here from Italy, Ireland, um, Russia, France, Germany. They had two cents in their pocket, didn't speak a word of English. They were treated like dirt and look at us now. So my understanding was that we all got what we deserved based on our hard work. And my family was extremely successful and wealthy. And my explanation of that was that we had not only worked hard, but it turns out I also bought into biological uh, inferiority and superiority, which I don't like to admit. But as I say, as an um, activist and educator, if we aren't willing to go and look for those biases, we have no hope of dismantling their control over us. But I did. I bought into white superiority. I bought into male superiority. So my own gender inferiority. Yeah, I bought into all kinds of... Um, what I now understand are myths around human difference. Do you feel you were tricked? And, and, and was there some sort of organizing committee of trickery here? I mean, did you ever pick up a newspaper? Did you read the New York Times or even the Wall Street Journal? Did you watch television? I mean, some of these things that you're talking about seem reasonably self-evident in America, even for a, a, a student or a young woman. Yeah. Uh, yes, I did. And I had, quote unquote, you know, one of the best educations that money can buy. Um, again, I go back to this alternative explanation I had. So I noticed that there, you know, if I if I when I heard people come look at the language I'm about to say, complain about discrimination, when I heard discrimination, if I saw a protest, my my thought, which I would never say out loud because I was taught to be colorblind. I wasn't supposed to be seeing race, so I'm sure not going to be talking about it. There was zero talk about race in my childhood, home, church, school, culture. Um, and so in my head, I would silently be affirming ideas of, you know, if you just maybe stop talking about it, it would go away. Or, um, you know, my family did it. Why can't yours? Which 
is the exact language I hear today by people who are still caught in that, that mind frame. So it wasn't that I wasn't exposed. It's that I misinterpreted what I was exposed to. You said you got one of the best educations money could buy. Where were you educated? Um, well, after the Winchester Public Schools, I spent high school at a private girls' school in Boston, and then I went to Kenyon College, where I got a BA in history, and then I got an MBA. Um, but, uh, what strikes me, I, I can't comment on the history department at Kenyon, but I'm guessing at a fairly elite liberal arts college that, that the issues that you talk about uh, were were addressed in uh, history lectures and seminars, weren't they? Or, or was this trickery as you present it? Was it perpetrated at Kenyon too? Let's get back to that trickery uh, question. So, and also to place us in time. So I'm born in 1960. So I'm in high school in the 70s. I'm Same in college year as, my, as me. Yeah, yeah. So I'm in college in the early um, uh, 80s. Now you and I could go through the exact same degree and we will hear different things in the courses based on what's already in our belief systems so if you're coming to these courses with a more uh, nuanced and complex understanding of how the world works how discrimination works how privilege and power work you're going to receive the information in a different way than i i did so just put that out there so, so you're suggesting in a way that education it doesn't if you get brought up with all this as you present it this mythology then education doesn't really make any difference i think um it's, it's not that it doesn't make any difference i think that uh if you and i were sitting in a lecture today you know anybody we will filter information differently based on how we understand the world the question is why was my belief system so full of of errors and omissions which it was was it trickery uh for me, it feels, I know there was some state level trickery going on. I think more of my parents though, and what they passed on to me. And my parents were incredibly, uh, you know, they were good citizens. They wanted to be good citizens. They both volunteered a lot. Um, they gave away a lot of, you know, they were, they were charitable philanthropists. They were hardworking. And um, they also, I think just didn't know. So if if you read my book, the opening story is me asking my mother, and I'm at the I'm five, and I ask her whatever happened to all the Indians. Um, what she said. <laughs> she said they drank themselves to death. I have they're extinct. They drank themselves to death. I have told this story in auditorium after auditorium, and people shake white people shake their heads. I'm not the only one who was this naive. I'm not the only one who was fed uh, that story. And, you know, I have indigenous friends today who's, who will be standing there, an indigenous person, you know, looking like somebody in 2024 and not caught back in, um, you know, that sort of noble Indian costume regalia. And they'll tell someone they're indigenous and that person will say, but the Indians are extinct. And they're, and they're talking to an indigenous person. So my story, unfortunately, uh, the reason it hit a nerve, as you said, is because so many people resonated with it, particularly you, when- uh, Right, and, it, and I wanna to get to the story and I wanna talk about how you woke up, but just to come back briefly to American history, you said you majored at it at Kenyon. 
Yeah. How was American history presented? The history of slavery, the history of the Civil War, the failure of Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement. Was there a, a narrative or did you just come out confused? I, I, the only American history I remember taking was women's history. Yeah, I was a hist of women's history uh, was my focus in history. And the only women we studied were white women. So, you know, was that trickery? Was that evilness? I think that was just the bias of the white women who were designing that curriculum at the time. So a huge piece of this, it's inherited. We can't teach what we don't know. We can't lead where we won't go is a common saying in this work. And so I, I received that. I spent a lot of time study, studying European history. Um, in fact, when I wrote my, my what do you call it? Um, application, to go to, yeah, my, my application essay to go to Kenya. And I said, I wanted to be a history major. I was appalled at the Holocaust. That was something that really, really struck me. And, you know, my father and all my uncles, everyone had fought in World War II. And the idea that so recently a Holocaust had happened, I wrote, I want to go, I want to understand patterns through time, through history, so that I can participate in preventing them in the future. So that was my express interest going in to so Kenya. So you were aware of injustice. You just thought it happened elsewhere and not in America. Ex exactly. Because this was the land of the free. This is the freest, fairest, best country. I was told that again and again and again. So this idea of, an, and the title of the book, your, your big hit book, Waking Up White, of course, uh, suggests some sort of waking up from a dream or from some sort of sleep. Do you remember an exact moment when you began to wake up, when you began to recognize that you'd been living a dream, that you'd been in the cave, so to speak, and that you'd been staring at illusions? Yes. Yeah, so it was definitely that course, which was probably a four or five month period, but there was a moment in that course where I learned something that shocked me so much that I had a bodily reaction. I, I had a full-blown asthma attack. Um, and we were watching a film this on this particular night called Race, the Power of an Illusion. It's like a 30-year-old film at this point, made by California Newsreel. And it had been aired on PBS. I'd never seen it. And they're talking about the GI Bill in this particular um, moment that I'm about to react to. And I hear them say, um, they're talk so they're talking about the GI Bill. And I'm thinking, I know all about the GI Bill. My father went to Harvard Law School for free on that bill. My parents bought their home in Winchester on that bill. I know all about the GI Bill. Then I hear this line, the 1 million black GIs who also fought in World War II were mostly unable to access the GI Bill. And that was such a, just like a sound wave. It was an information wave that hit me. And the first thing I had to think about was there were 1 million black GIs in World War II. Where were they in my movies or my TV shows or my books or my history classes? Like, how do you get to the age of 48 and only be imagining white GIs when you hear the term American GI? And I would go on to learn there were also, you know, half a million Asian American veterans, half a million Mexican American, 44,000 indigenous veterans. And I was told the Indians were extinct and big air quotes around Indian as an outdated term. But uh, the next thing that I had to contend with in that wall of information was the fact that all of these black and brown GIs who 
had gone over to the World War II arena and returned were, were it, there were some exceptions, but by and large, they were unable to access any of those education attaining, wealth building opportunities that my father and all my uncles and all the white men around me had been able to attain. And the way it was explained to me was, you know, through the how the housing component is explained through the the lending the, the um, housing and lending system in the 1940s, which grew out of the 1930s, which you know involves redlining, and so the reason, and I can explain that more if you want, but assuming people know more about it <laughs> than I did, um, the reason black and brown GIs couldn't attain the mortgage component of the GI Bill, even though the GI Bill didn't say it's a white-only bill, is because there were barriers all through U.S. systems and structures, including in the housing and lending. So it was already difficult to impossible for a Black person to go buy uh, a home. Uh, yeah, um, you grew up, of course, in Massachusetts, as I said, Winchester. You're talking to me from Cambridge now. The conventional narrative is that the North is different from the South and that in many ways, the emancipation movement was led from the North and perhaps even from Boston. We've done shows on that. Did part of your waking up, was it part of your waking up about recognizing that there wasn't a great deal of difference between Boston, Massachusetts and Natchez, Mississippi? Yes. So definitely a difference in, um, in the expression of racism, but very little difference in the impact and and what it meant to be a person of color. So, you know, people of color, the great migration, escaped the Jim Crow South uh, and, you know, that great migration where black folks are moving northwards and westwards and landing in cities like Boston only to encounter all these new forms of racism. Um, but weren't there way, I mean, throughout the 60s and 70s, Boston became a story about busing and white resistance to busing. When you were aware of that, I mean, even, even as a local woman. It's five miles away from my house. No. I mean, I, I knew something about it, but I think, um, and again, what I'm going to describe to you is going to be shocking to you. I can't tell you how common this experience is. These white parents raised their white children in the 60s and 70s um, with an express desire to give them a protected childhood. And so that's what I had. My parents very intentionally, I'm the youngest of five. Um, and so, and there's a 14 year span. So my older siblings actually were very involved. They went down South and registered voters. You know, they were college students while I'm a little five-year-old, not knowing anything going on in the world, they're college students and, and they're active that doesn't make it to the dinner table. We don't talk about that at home. I didn't find that out until my book, I was on a certain, I don't know, like version eight, draft eight of my book. And my sisters uh, read it and say, wait a second, you know, this is what we were doing while that was happening at home. So this project for me brought, uh, you know, broke open a family conversation, a long overdue family conversation. And we all, the five of us started to recognize just how slightly different and in some cases exaggeratedly different our experiences around race and racism had been. One thing that's been heartbreaking for me is that my parents uh, were no longer alive when I took that course. And uh, I've never, I was never able to say 
Like, did you know, mom and dad, when you moved to Winchester, that that GI Bill was leaving behind all of these people? Did you know that? Because in fact, you wouldn't have to know it. All you would have to do is say, wow, that's a great deal. I'm going to take advantage of that. You did don't have to. this your sense? You, you talked about finding yourself. And, and one of your identities, obviously, is as an American woman. Did this waking up as a white woman, did it? change your sense of being an American and what it meant to be an American? Oh my God. Yes, it did. I, you know, I think I felt a little embarrassed um, because I feel, I don't know if you know the Mary Tyler Moore show or that character, Ted Baxter, who just, you know, walks no. around, you know, all puffed up like he's, and he's just clueless about how he's being received by other people. I sort of wondered how many times had I stepped into a space with this kind of sense of superiority, whether it was overseas because I spent time in Europe or back here. And, um, and this claim America is the best country in the world, which I just heard Nikki Haley say the other day. Um, I grew up with that narrative. And I, the more I think about it, the more I think it's it's why do we need to say we're the best country? Can't we just be another really good, well-intentioned, hardworking country? Because like this Denmark. Like, the Danes, yeah. everyone wants to be like Denmark. They don't show off about themselves. Yeah. And I mean, it's just it's so off-putting and it's really dangerous when we're talking about doing that at the state level. You know, of course, I, I think it invites sabotage by other countries because Everybody wants to knock a braggart off their off their. Pedestal. Debbie, so, uh, you talked about your parents trying to protect you. Was part of that protection not associating you with black people? Did you have any experience with any black kids at your school at college? Did you have any black friends? Absolutely not. Um, uh, let me just add part of the. I think part of the reason my parents were so extremely protective with me is that. Um, the Vietnam War and sex and drugs and rock and roll enter when I'm like six, seven years old. And so uh, now they now they're in double protection mode, not just suburban protection, but like all that other stuff that's that on. So we didn't watch the uh, I wasn't allowed to watch the news. I was only allowed to watch PBS. There were a couple uh, Chinese. Yeah, but at what age? I mean, at some point you got your own radio or you went over to your friends. You must have. We didn't talk about this stuff. We really didn't. I mean, and I was a full-blown hippie by the time I got to college. I listened to a lot of the Grateful Dead and, um, you know, I. but we did not have these. It, it really bothers me that, like, I was sitting there singing reggae songs, like Bob Marley songs, singing the lyrics without any understanding really of what he was singing about. Now, I was absolutely socialized to be, um, you know, to, to just to, to look the other way. We're speaking with Debbie Irving. She wrote best-selling book in 2014, 10 years ago, Waking Up White about her own discovery of herself and as an American in the context of the story of race. I want to thank uh, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics for helping bring us such interesting guests as uh, Debbie Irving. Uh, it's an excellent new publication. It addresses race in all sorts of interesting ways too. 
uh, going to run a short feature on liberties. And then I want to come back with Debbie Irving and talk about the last 10 years and how that has reshaped not at just uh, the issue of race in America, but in her own life. So don't go away, anyone. We'll be back in about 10 and a half seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Debbie Irvine, the author of Waking Up White, uh, uh, a 2014 bestseller that remains incredibly resonant. Today in the first part of the show, we talked about how Debbie woke up and found herself in the context of the story of racial injustice in America. Debbie, a great deal has happened over the last 10 years when it comes to race. Do you take any credit for that? Your type of book? Do you think you've forced Americans to wake up to this sort of thing? No, I don't take credit. I do think it put me right on the front lines, though, of one of the most important 10-year chapters in um in racial reckoning, anti-racism history, it, you know, because <clears throat> I thought I would spend six months to two years promoting my book when it came out, just to make sure it got into the hands of, of many people and a significant number of people who would then word of mouth pass it on. Six months after my book comes out, um, Michael Brown was murdered in Ferguson, uh, Missouri. And that what happened was I watched my book sales just go like this. They spiked. I mean, tripled, quadrupled overnight. And then things leveled out. And then, you know, sort of it, it, from that point forward, every six months or less, there would be a highly sensationalized um, murder of a Black person by the police. And every time that happened, my sales would spike. So... I don't think I'm responsible. I played a role in the awakening. I do think I created a tool that was a really effective tool as the whole country and world perhaps began waking up. Uh, my book was a book that people reached for and I am grateful to it's I basically wrote the book I thought I had needed <laughs> once upon a time. Like if I'd been given this book at age 20 or age 16, it would have changed my ability to perceive the world differently. And so I'm really grateful that I created a useful tool for that period. Many books of these types have been written both before and particularly since. Are there books written in the last 10 years that you think add to your understanding of race? I mean, some of these books are, are very controversial. Don't need me to tell you that. Robin DiAngelo, for example, Ibram uh, uh, K. Kendi, uh, who I know teaches in Boston. Are there mm -hmm. books? Uh, Heather McGee, we've had Heather McGee on the show. Isabel mm -hmm. Wilkerson uh, mm -hmm. is an entire sort of corpus of books on this subject. Which in particular have had an influence on you? Uh, oh, let me turn my phone off for a second. Uh, so many. I mean, you can see the scene behind me. And this is just, you know, I got rid of 300 books just a couple months ago. I am a 
avid book consumer. And I, I don't feel like I woke up. I feel like I am still waking up. My learning curve has hardly slowed for a day. Um, the books that you're citing as controversial, uh, what, every all four books that you just mentioned, so White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo, I thought that was a really powerful book, naming a very um, specific uh, phenomenon that happens. And I think it was really helpful. A lot of people still, and now, of course, we hear the term male fragility, ability fragility, cisgender fragility. So that's a word that's out in the lexicon. And I think it's helpful to understand it um, as a form of stopping the work, power, shutting down. I thought Ibram X. Kendi's book was really fantastic for me because it really, it complicated the way I understood racism and, and racism in a good way, complicated it in a good way, added a lot of nuance. Just the idea that the very same person can be operating from a, uh, a racially constructed mindset one moment and an anti-racist constructed mindset the next. Uh, Heather McGee's The Sum of Us, I thought was just wonderful and not much controversial about that, I don't think, because it made what she's really trying to do is saying, every single one of us has something to gain by dismantling the system that divides us and, and uh, yeah, particularly whites uh, or white working class. And uh, we had a very yes. conversation with McGee. And then what about Wilkerson? I'm not sure if you've seen the new film on the Wilkerson yes. cast. Do you buy her thesis that race in America is it, it, it essentially the same as anti-Semitism under the Nazis in Germany or the caste system in India? I thought it was a brilliant analysis. Yes, the caste, <clears throat> and they're all systems of oppression. Uh, so she compares Indian, the Indian caste, India caste, India's caste system to uh, the Holocaust, the German Holocaust's caste, you know, Aryan Jew caste system to black, anti-black caste system in the US. And yes, for me, the dynamics are really worth looking at as a, as a trio. And I would also say for me, when I think about, well, what is racism? Is it different than caste? I think racism is a tool of caste. So um, that's what I would say. So you wrote this book in 2014. Uh, Obama was still president, of course. Has much changed between 2014 and 2024 in America? Is the core problem the one of at least in your view of uh, of whiteness, is it still the core problem in America? It's one of the core problems. I think um, capitalism has been unfettered. A lot of, of financial guardrails were dismantled. Then that's contributing to the polarization. You know, you know, just the kind of the, the disappearance of the middle class. Uh, my lens is always whiteness, and whiteness is a tool of of capitalism. And uh, for people who don't know that history, the plantation elite who really began the set the course here on uh, what we now call we now call the United States, the masses were black, indigenous, uh, European descended. We weren't using the word white yet. Um, and the masses were, this is back in the 1600s, were rebelling against the plantation elite. And in order to divide and conquer the masses, the invention of white comes along to describe some of those people. 
And so suddenly European descended people are called white and they have privileges that all the other people do not have. And one of their privileges is to police black and brown people. So, um, you know, they, they have uh, one of their privileges are to have protection um, under the law. They get to become citizens. I mean, eventually, once the U.S. is formed, white is a requirement to become a citizen. So white people have and the, and the idea of white as an actual race, as opposed to a social construction, has been used as a political tool. And it's been incredibly effective. And we see how politicians through history have used it as a dog whistle. So we see Donald Trump is using it all, all the time now. All what about the argument that some people might make? Well, this is all very well. It's all rather abstract. But America elected uh, an African-American president twice in the period you know, just before you wrote the book. Uh, well, a couple of times before you wrote the book. So how can that be the case? Because... Um, there's this term white lash to describe the very specific backlash that happens anytime there's been black progress in the United States. You know, emancipation, things are going beautifully for a while, reconstruction, and there's a huge backlash around that. Civil rights, there's a huge backlash against that. You then we're seeing some of some of that now. We're definitely seeing a backlash to um, the way. School, the education system, the healthcare system, corporate America all started to embrace DEI work. Um, that's being shut down. So yeah, we are we are in a in a white lash. I don't know if you've heard of uh, Dr. Carol Anderson. Yeah, actually, she's a, a good friend of mine, and she's been on the show several times. Yeah, I mean, I just think her she she just captures and articulates so beautifully. You know, this white rage, this just intolerance for. Uh, black Americans to succeed. So yeah, I like Carol's work, although the only problem with those arguments is that they are rather abstract. And it's give, given the changes, given the fact that there now is a larger black middle class and prominent black politicians, I, I'm never quite sure whether Carol is arguing it can never change. Um, or, or, or if it or, or how it changes. What's your analysis of that? Leaving aside Carol, I mean, it's not for us to. to yeah, to I'm actually really is. curious uh, about the term abstract. I would like to hear more from you what you mean when you say that. But I will say about anybody who does this work, like me, like Robin, like like uh, like Robin D'Angelo, like Kendi, like McGee, like uh, Wilkerson, any of us, we wouldn't do it if we didn't think change was possible. Um. So and there's Carol, uh, Carol is very proud of, in fact, in one of my interviews with her, I went down to Emory, spent some time with her uh, in her office in the university there. She's a professor. And at the end, I said, do you feel yourself to be American? And she said, of course I do. And that's what gives me my optimism. Is that true with you, too? Is your you, you did you wake up a, a, a different kind of an Americanism in the experience of the book and the 10 years since the book? That's such a good question. Here's how I would answer it. I was told from the, the earliest age that I lived in a country that was free and fair. It was the freest and fairest. And to me, that was the most powerful, beautiful idea of trusting people to come here and work hard and build a life. And that's what I'm still fighting for. What happened to me when I woke up was I found out that though that was true for my family, 
it wasn't true for so many people, entire populations. And that is against my personal values. And I think it's against the American values. It's against the American values as I was taught them. That's why I do. I feel like Carol does. I mean, that's why I do what I do. I'm fighting for that America, that set of values. Finally, um, what about the the backlash against DEI in education, the Trump movement, the Make America Great movement? How, how, how do you read that? And is there, can there be in some ways any truth that people like Kendi have gone too far or can they never go far enough in your view on this stuff? I mean, are there people in your yeah. camp who you think might be a little extreme? Well, you know, I like to think that um, if we really were the free and fair uh, country that we say we are and that we don't silence voices, that there is room for all perspectives. And so, no, I wouldn't say anyone's gone too far. Then the trick I then then the, the challenge for me is, well, how do I how do I navigate hate speech? Because if that's truly what somebody feels. So that's I struggle with with how to um, work with that. I don't think people are going too far because um, this is a 400 plus year old system that has dealt traumatic blow after traumatic blow to real living human beings who have been raped repeatedly. I'm thinking specifically about enslaved black women, you know, bred. Um, this is, of course, I, I've skipped right over the Middle Passage. I mean, just the brutality and indigenous genocide. I mean, there's so much uh, devastation and trauma in our system that I don't think it's too much to tie to really stand up and scream, pay attention, which is what I think people are doing. You know, when Kendi is meticulously outlining his law after law after law, He's doing it to say, wake up, pay attention, look at what, look at the country we've built. So I wouldn't say that's too far. Um, because of my personal history of um, having been raised to never raise my voice and to see people who raise their voice as sort of emotionally out of control and everything is fine in our country here, uh, I understand why people react really strongly to that. I understand why that feels scary and threatening and and um, and quote unquote out of line. What I encourage people as I educate is to build our emotional capacity so that we really can sit and, and hear somebody else's rage uh, without having to react to it. Just listen to it because we're not going to learn if we don't listen to each other. Um, and I think people who are outraged because they've been discriminated against and traumatized and marginalized have every right to scream as loud as they want.